You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Corbett is the author of The Devil's Redhead, Done for a Dime. His new book is The Blood of Paradise. Thank you for joining me, David. I'm happy to be here, Rick. David, tell us a little bit about your newest book. This takes you out of your comfort zone to a certain extent, or does it get you back into it? Well, it takes me out of um, Northern California. Um, it took me to El Salvador, and actually, um, Blood of Paradise came out in 2007, and the new book comes out in January, and it's also a book that takes place in Central America. And that one's called, Do They Know I'm Running? And I went to El Salvador because I met somebody from there. She was a fascinating person, lovely. She's still a very good friend. Uh, We met in Northern California. And she was the daughter of a Salvadoran colonel who had been murdered in 1980 by a death squad because he'd left the military, which is something you do not do in El Salvador. And... um, then she just invited me down to meet her friends and her family. And uh, it's a very interesting country in that in the 1930s, there was a massacre of many of the indigenous people because of a, uh, a Marxist uprising. And if you wore indigenous clothing, you were basically targeted for death. And so unlike Guatemala, where you still have a great deal of the Mayan clothing and the Mayan culture, in El Salvador, it's very, very rare you see that. I mean, if it's, if it's made or it's, or it's you know, manufactured, it's for sale for tourists. So it's a very Americanized culture, and there's a lot of American fast food and a lot of American restaurants, and uh, it frankly looked like a large, sprawling East Los Angeles wow. <laughs> until you got out into the countryside. And then things became a lot more interesting, and you got to see people you know, living the, the lives that they've been living for centuries. Um, but it's also a very desperately poor country, very po- polarized with respect to class in a way that we don't see here in the States. I, mean, I had an interesting conversation with a, a member of Mara Salvatrucha who had left the gang. That's a, a large Central American gang that mm-hmm. started in Los Angeles and is now one of the major problems that you have down in Central America. Um, the gangs? He had le- the gangs. Oh, really? And uh, Oh, yes. We can talk about that. Uh, that figures very much in both Blood of Paradise and the new book. Um, but he had, uh, he'd left the gangs uh, and was now doing a sort of an outreach for gang members mm-hmm. uh, to try to get them out of the life. And, uh, and he commented on the, the, the odd sense of class there. He said it's, a, uh, it's almost poisonous. You go into a, a McDonald's and somebody's a manager and they act like they're a patron. You know, it's, uh, this is weird. I've got one leg up because it's so acidic that if you can get some kind of leg up, you use it um, because people look down on you in, in a very odd way. And I had actually, I did meet some people from the upper class, and uh, if you put a couple drinks in them, it was interesting. <laughs> uh, I just had never, uh, basically poor people are chattel. Um, they're not to be trusted. Um, and you get the sense that this anger and this resentment comes from guilt, mm-hmm. but it's, you're not gonna get very far making that point with them. They're just, uh, it's, uh, because there's such a, uh, there's a fear between the classes. There's a resentment. There's a hatred that is, you know, certainly decades, if not centuries old. So that was eye-opening. And, um, and yet, by and large, everybody I met was incredibly generous, very wonderful to deal with, extremely helpful. And um, 
And I was just very moved by the place, and I thought, I want to I write a book about this. Well, talk about uh, creating this book, because it moves back and forth between uh, the United States and, and El Salvador, the way a lot of people do. So talk about uh, architecting this novel. Well, I, um, I, I, the basic idea I wanted to talk about was, uh, again, El Salvador has a long history with us. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to t- uh, talk about, you know, what is our involvement now? And it had become relevant because uh, with the Iraq War, there was talk about a Salvador option in the counterinsurgency. And the whole notion was that, well, since we had done so well in our counterinsurgency in El Salvador, uh, we could bring those lessons to bear in Iraq. And I was kind of dumbfounded by this because I thought, does anybody who's thinking this stuff up really know what life is like for the average Salvadoran? I mean, a, a success story for whom? And also, I mean, when you, when you do your homework, you find out that military people themselves, the Green Berets, who were doing a lot of the, uh, the work with the Salvadoran military, they themselves had a very jaundiced view of what our successes were going to be. And in 1988, there was a paper written by four colonels, uh, one of whom was Andrew Basevich, who now teaches at uh, Boston University. And um, that just saying that, you know, the best we can hope for is a stalemate, and a stalemate is a victory for the insurrection. You know, because the government has to prove it can control its territory. And as long as the insurrection survives, it's winning. And the reason that there was no way that they could prevail was because the, the government in general and the office, officer corps in particular was too sadistic and too corrupt to warrant the support of the troops or the popul- population at large. And this was imp- particularly hard for um, American counterinsurgency because our military model really depends on the NCO, the sergeant in the field. None of these recruits wanted to be sergeants because, you know, the officers would just abuse them. The officers never went into the field. They'd just send these guys out and say, go ahead, get slaughtered, see if I care. And so th- they didn't have the, the integration that was necessary for a successful war campaign. Hmm. You know, there were some exceptions. There were some battalions that, that actually did take to, uh, take to it. But um, so the whole notion that somehow this was some grand success just flummoxed to me, especially when, by the time they're bringing this up, you know, El Salvador had the highest homicide, homicide rate in the hemisphere, and this, again, is related to the gangs. Um, land distribution had never really taken place. It was promised by the peace accords, but it hadn't happened. Uh, there was incredible problem with organized crime, and this is sort of the secret of the Americas. Nobody wants to talk about it, but all these militaries you know, that were supposedly so successful in counterinsurgency are now very much in league with the Colombian and the Mexican cartels. And uh, this is a huge problem. And they use the gangs as their foot soldiers for, you know, street dealing and for enforcers. And sooner or later, you know, th- the problem is the gangs are too disorganized. Um, they're, they're too unsophisticated to be reliable as real players at the high end of organized crime, but mm-hmm. they are useful in terms of being humps and mules and being killers. And, um, and they're, that they do with aplomb. They also do shakedowns incredibly. What, what they're, they're really, really menacing uh, in what they do to, for example, small business people, bus drivers. They just shake down everybody. They run these incredible uh, intimidation rackets. And so the people are fleeing. You know, at, at the time that uh, Dick Cheney was saying that, you know, uh, in the 2004 debate, vice presidential debate, that, you know, well, things were a whale of a lot better in El Salvador because of, you know, what we did there. You know, an average of 700 people a day were leaving to come here. So this it was just sound like success to it me. It was insane. <laughs> and, and, and it isn't that, you know, and, and I, I'm 
So in any event, so that was one of my motivations for writing. I wanted to write a book that, that described the current situation there. And um, water is a huge issue around the world. And you don't hear about it much in El Salvador, but it's very much an issue because of privatization. Mm -hmm. That you've got, you know, like most Latin American cultures whose historical and political legacy goes back to Habsburg Spain, you've got this fascination with huge, sprawling, and inefficient bureaucracies that basically do nothing except give somebody's uncle or nephew a job. And ANDA, the water agency in El Salvador, is just like this. But unfortunately, that's just the biggest. There's like 26 other agencies that involve water, and none of them get anything done. And um, so there's this big push for privatization, which, of course, the, the World Bank and the IMF have been key for, and the United States is pushing for. But in a country where you've got such stratified wealth, that just means that you're handing over the water system to you know, one of the few people who already run everything. It and seems um, like a transfer from uh, the left hand to the right hand. That, that, well, pretty much. And where it has occurred, it hasn't really increased efficiency. And there's the whole notion that, no, water should, is a public good, and it should be a, mm -hmm. a public benefit. And, yes, the, the government should be more efficient. It's a human right to yeah. have water. <laughs> so, um, so I just – and I'd read an article. It was this one little paragraph thing, but it was about a, a water bottling plant uh, by this company that had – basically sucked the aquifer dry in the region where it was, and then it would just move to the next place. And this was happening, and so I thought, okay, that's, I can run with that. So that was sort of the setup. And um, I just, I wanted to do something about a bodyguard because I'd met one and, and uh, had done a little research about that. And so I just imagined a hydrologist who's been hired by foreign investors to look into this bottling plant expansion that they want to do. And he refuses to sign off on it. He says, no, all you're doing is sucking the water away from public wells, you know, to mm -hmm. sell bottled water back to the people whose water you just stole. I mean, I just, <laughs> I'm just not going to sign off on that. And so <laughs> the bodyguard realizes, oh, great, now I have to protect him from the guys who hired him as well as the gangs. And uh, because they just decide, okay, we'll get rid of this guy, make it look like a botched kidnap attempt, and get somebody else who'll do what we want to do because, you know, we can't have this guy hanging around. So well, that's this, what pretty much the book is about. This sounds like a, an environment that's rich with uh, conflict and, and uh, layers of society, and uh, particularly on the criminal side where you have essentially uh, a class system that uh, mirrors the class system elsewhere. With Absolutely. The, with the, the bosses at the very top, the military handling the, the higher-end stuff, and then the, the chattel class of the gangs out there terrorizing the populace. That's very much what the book is about. And it, it is. Crime is as stratified as everything else in El Salvador. And you have this divide between the haves and the have-nots, and you have, you know, and the shot callers and, you know, the guys on the bottom. And that's very much what the book is about. And the people who are connected you know the and, and it's not like everybody who's wealthy in El Salvador is a criminal that's not what I'm saying but there is a protected class the key word in Latin America these days is impunity you have the UN going into Guatemala to train prosecutors and judges on how to deal with prosecuting crime because only two percent of homicides in that country ever reach resolution that's I mean, that means 98% of the murders in, in Guatemala are unsolved. Well, what a great place to set mysteries, eh? Well, Guatemala, yeah, <laughs> and then the new book does involve Guatemala, but, um, but El Salvador has much the same problem, mm -hmm. and it's, it's the notion that there is a protected class, because judges, it's only recently in El Salvador history that judges had to have a legal background. Well, it that's was just, kind of incredible. It's just political appointment, you know, and so everybody's connected to somebody else, and there's people that you just never... You just don't bother about us. If they come across your radar, it's not an issue. Could you talk about taking an American genre that's known for American settings and moving it 
uh, to Latin America like oh, that. Oh, crime is crime. Also, there's there's <laughs> a, a number of wonderful you know uh, Latin American crime writers, and. Um, and it's a genre that's been embraced wonderfully all around the world. I mean, there you even have Chinese crime writers, and which is a fascinating, you know, because crime is all about the individual putting himself above society. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about, and, and the justifications for that. Sometimes it's just because, you know, society just wants to bear, you know, wants to grind me down, and I refuse. There was a, um, a gang study once that described the ethos of gangs as defiant individualism. I'm not sure I buy that, but I find it fascinating. And I think there's an element of that in all crime, that I refuse to be who this society says I have to be. Society's outcasts and, and iconoclasts just mm -hmm. defining themselves by virtue of being criminals. Yeah, but that there's, that there's another side of crime, which you know, is that you know, I'm entitled, a sense of entitlement, going, no, I'm, you know, I deserve better than, than this, and I'm going to take it. And, um, and you get that in business as well as, as in, you know, in crime. I, I was a private investigator for 15 years, and I used to joke that I'd rather defend the average drug dealer over the average self-made man. Because most drug, you know, most drug dealers are kind of stupid and hapless, you know, and, and the <laughs> harm they can cause is relatively limited. But, you know, I, th there was just some guys I defended, you know, these guys who'd started their own businesses and become wealthy, and they just said, hey, look, man, <laughs> the rules apply to somebody else. And uh, <laughs> That's a scary thought. I'm a success, and I'm a success because I work hard, and, um, you know, the competition, the reason they, they can't keep up is they're not as good as me, so screw them. And, if, you know, I just don't care. You know, it's just like, I don't care. In fact, there's a phrase in here, um, in Blood of Paradise, the bodyguard talks about people he has to protect. And he says, you know, sometimes I, I, the people he's protected he been, he have been great. And the hydrologist in this book, you know, the rarest of, of men, a guy with a conscience, um, he really respects and is dedicated to making sure that he stays safe. But he says, the truth of the matter is, you know, the, the vast majority of people who make things happen are rip-roaring assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're guys who got stuck at some point in, in time where they just said, you know, it's all about me. And their favorite phrase is, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you know, that, that dam is going to, you know, flood the communities of a whole bunch of poor people. Well, you know what? I don't care. That's progress. We'll move them. Tough. You know, there's bigger issues involved, and the bigger issue is me, <laughs> basically. And, um, you know, I just, I've had bodyguards tell me, you know, that some guys are absolutely dedicated to it, and they don't get into it, and they don't talk to the principal, and it doesn't really matter. You know, my job, it's, they call it a package, you know. The mm -hmm. package is going to get delivered safe, and that's it. It has nothing to do with who they are. But I just found that to be, you know, from a, a novel standpoint, you, you want the relationship to be a little bit more human. And so, in this case... My guy is, is very much attached. Uh, Axel, his, uh, the, the engineer, the hydrologist's name is Axel Odelberg, which was actually the name of one of my wife's clients, and I loved Axel. He was, a, he was an engineer. He was one of the old, <laughs> you know, hardy Swedes, you know, who was still, like, chopping wood. and He was, like, 90 years old, and he was, you know, in better shape than I was. And uh, I really admired him, so I wanted to use that name. It kind of captured the character for me. And uh, for Jude McManus, who's the bodyguard in the book, uh, Axel was almost a, a father figure. Now, uh, is Jude McManus the character in your new book? No. In the new book, I have... It was actually, the first book, I haven't used some characters from a previous book, even in cameos. It's a completely new group. But it's a Salvadoran-American family. And uh, the protagonist is a young man named Roque Montalvo. And Roque is a gifted guitarist. 
He's 18 years old, and everybody's thinking that he's going to be the next Carlos Santana. You're, you're, you're very interested in writing about musicians, and you do so quite well. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, was, a, uh, I, I was something of a musician myself, though I, I used to... That my byline was the world's most adequate guitarist. <laughs> and uh, I now say, you know, my chops have turned to slops. I, I don't do it as much as I would like to. But yeah, I, I, I like that world and I like musicians. And in particular, there's a kind of intelligence about music that's nonverbal, that mm-hmm. as a writer I find fascinating. And also um, writers, I mean, write, this is true of writers, but it's really true of musicians. They are the real ambassadors of the world because sound doesn't know any borders. And musicians always just suck up what is ever around them musically, sonically. And as a result, they're always fascinated by another sound, another rhythm, another um, whatever else is happening. And I think Latino music in particular is the greatest example of music as a culture that has just always assimilated whatever it hears around itself. It's got African, it's got indigenous, it's got European music, and uh, you've, got these, that you've got the harmony of Europe and the rhythms of, of Africa joined together in these fascinating combinations, and it's just, I think the most interesting music in the world being done right now is coming out of Latin America, and it's just leaps and bounds above a lot of what you hear. Now, and I don't mean to diminish what comes out of Africa or, you know, or, or that, but I gotta tell you, I'm just entranced with it, and the more I learn, the more I want to know, and there just seems to be a well that's fathomless. And so I was fascinated by that. I just thought, well, let's give a, you know, let's let's well, let's use that. You know, it, it, as a writer, you always, you know, what is it that's turning me on? Okay, let's put it on the page, and hopefully it'll turn somebody else on. So I, that Roque is that, but his older brother, actually a half brother, is a uh, Godo or Godofredo, and Godo is just guy, one of those guys who's just sort of an ambling. You know, I'm in for a good time, a bit of a roughneck, and. Um, was a Marine in Iraq mm-hmm. and, um, and came back very badly damaged, both emotionally and physically. And his inspiration was, uh, the immigration debate was hot and heavy when I was writing this book. And I remember listening to what I thought was the demonization of Latino Americans. At the same time, I'm watching the casualty list come back from Iraq and realizing, you know, does, is anybody paying attention to how many Latino names you know, how many service people are Latino and that they're giving their life for this country and that they believe in this country and you're kicking their family members out of the country? Does, is this a disconnect for anybody else besides me? And, um, and so I, th- that was one of the reasons I wanted you know, to put Godo in the book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Godo is one of my f- favorite characters. I, uh, I came from a family of brothers and I've reinvented a family of brothers for this. And, um, and they're a bunch of roughnecks, but they're pretty fun, and I think people like them. And then there's a cousin who's part of the circle, and his name, his name is Pablo, but um, his nickname is Happy because he's never happy, and uh, which is like how street handles work. You know, they always call it, the biggest guy in the in the the clique is always called Tiny, and um, so Happy is just this dour, dark, brooding brother. He's the oldest of the three, and uh, but he's the one who comes up with the plan. The book is basically about uh, the father figure in the family. Uh, his name is uh, Faustino, is a port truck driver at the port of Oakland. And um, before these new IDs went in, approximately 30% of the drivers at the port of Oakland were undocumented. 
Really? It's, yeah, it's a non-union job. Um, it's very hard to make a living, but these guys, you know, they're they're there at 4 o'clock in the morning. They spend all day there. If they get two runs, they're lucky just because they have to sit all day just for the stuff. And all they do, it's a drayage run. You pick up a, a can, you take it over to that warehouse in Alameda, and you come back and get back in line again. And you can, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you know, if you've got a repair on your truck, it means you don't pay your registration that month or you don't pay your insurance that month. And you try to make that money up next month, you pay your insurance and you let, her, and you let a repair go. And this is, it's very much fly-by-night. And uh, I talked to a Salvadoran who is a driver there. And he told me, you know, what his life was like. And um, so that was interesting to me. And then the uncle gets caught in, an, in a raid, a workplace raid, and he gets deported. And so these three sons, Happy, Godofredo, and Roque, have to come up with a plan on, you know, they don't want him having to do what the usual immigrant thing was, you know, walking through the jungle, jumping freight trains, getting robbed by gang members. And Happy has actually had to immigrate recently. He got kicked out on a drug charge, and he's snuck back in, and he's dealt with some gang members. So he thinks he has a plan, and he comes up with that. So they make a pact with the devil, basically, to make it easier for the father to come back. And like all pacts with the devil, things go a little haywire. Could you talk about writing about gangs, creating that kind of dynamic that exists within the gang? Well, you got to remember, gangs are largely guys who feel that there's no place else for them, and they have finally found their place. And there's a sense of loyalty and brotherhood and yet, this, the, how you gain status is that you become the baddest guy in the gang. So it, it, there's very much about violence, there's very much about crime, and yet the sense of loyalty. It's this weird mix of vice and virtue that I find just really fascinating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and it's a trap that once you're in, how do you get out? If you decide, you know, no. It's a, it really is a, again, you, I, I hate to use this metaphor more than once in, in an interview, but packed with the devil. And, um, and Mara Salvatrucha in particular is fascinating because it was made by kids who'd come up, who, whose families had fled the Civil War in El Salvador on both sides of the conflict. You had mm -hmm. both, um, you know, guerrillas and their families, and you had, you know, f soldiers who either deserted, you know, who had fled the conflict or didn't want to serve in the military and had fled. And, um, but when they got to Los Angeles, they were getting the crap kicked out of them by um, the, the, the Mexican gangs. I'm trying to think in particular, the 8th Street, 18th Street gang was the most prominent at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, did you talk to these gang members? Some. I, I've talked to a few. And like mm -hmm. I said, I talked to this guy in El Salvador and a couple others up here. And, um, and I've known, you know, I, I was a PI for 15 years. I'd worked on a couple gang cases. I've got buddies now still in the business who referred me to a couple guys. Um, and I just kind of sit down and, and talk with them about their life and stuff. Mostly just kind of get a rhythm of speech, kind of get a sense of there seems to be a doing. family dynamic that goes oh, on totally. in there. Oh, totally. Totally family dynamic. Could and you talk about creating that in, in prose, you know, for, for readers who, you know, are living really comfortable lives to create that kind of odd family dynamic? Well, is it, I, I don't know that I'd use odd. It is, um, again, a lot of these guys are fatherless. Mm -hmm. So the whole notion, what they do is they develop a brotherhood. But, of course, you know, somebody has to be on top. So there's this pseudo-father that comes into it. And it, it's really... It's not a whole lot unlike the military. I mean, the military is full of guys with father issues, mm -hmm. you know, and gangs are not a whole lot different, except they're just screwy, you know, and their, their values are, are crazy. And, and that, but it's amazing. Uh, that, uh, a lot of the gangs now, and this, this comes up in the new book, is the gangs are looking for f guys who've been in the military to teach them some discipline, to teach them, you know, okay, yeah, we can shoot, but we never hit anything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this is a problem. Yeah, it is a problem, <laughs> trust me. Well, actually, it's not a problem. I, I would like it. It would, the world would be a much better place if they couldn't hit anything. 
But the, uh, there is a real problem with the fact that the, the gangs were involved in the military. Um, while we're kicking gays out of the military, we're recruiting gang members. That's a, a logic that has completely defied me. But, um, and we're having a problem now with uh, some gang members who are just incredibly sophisticated with weaponry because that's, they were trained by the best. One of the things that, that interests me about your work, um, I think, and it's present in all of your work, is you have a really, there's a really strong social constant conscience, a really strong line of political commentary that runs your work, but it comes out of the characters. Could you talk about creating that kind of uh, sense of, of characters who inhabit a, a political and social world? And, and well, politics is really just morals. It's, it's, it's the machinery of morals on, okay, whose moral vision will guide the culture? That's what politics is all about. And in that regard, it, that's why it's as intense as religion, because it's, it's that core, you know, and morality is all about who's right and who's wrong. Um, and that really is a character issue. It's, you know, what do I believe? You know, do I believe is right or wrong? So um, when you write about politics, you're really talking about conflict, which is drama. So it naturally gives itself over to character, as far as I'm concerned. And, and of course, y you always have to embody all conflicts in a novel, you know, within the characters themselves. Um, the key is not to judge, you know, to, to see. It, it was difficult in Blood of Paradise because I'm dealing with trafficking of children for sexual purposes. And I almost always try to see the virtues in my bad guys. Mm -hmm. What's the virtue in that? You know, there is none. I mean, this is true evil. Mm -hmm. But, of course, everybody's the hero of their own story. And sure. so even these guys will see, you know, look, if it wasn't us, it'd be somebody else. There's, a, that, there's always that excuse. Uh, and the other one was the whole class thing, that these are the forgotten. These are chattel. They're not really people. Now, who thinks that way, and why do they think that way? And it's people who have a way of life that they feel is threatened, and they need to protect it. And so I try to get into that. Again, it's a very much of a family feeling. You know, my, my mobsters in Blood of Paradise are all family men. They're prominent people who just believe that, you know, those people will slaughter us in our beds if we give them a chance. We have to be ruthless and relentless and vigilant. We have to be strong or the country will fail. And, um, you know, you have, to, you have to live that. You have to see that. You have to know people who think that way and, you know, who will share their meals with you and, and talk to you and look you in the eye and trust you. And to get that, you know, they're not, you know, some subterranean beast. They're human beings who really do believe this way. And as much as I, I can't say I embrace it and even don't even understand it as well, there's, in a certain sense, I can intuit that world. And that's what I needed to write about. Um, you always go to whatever is baffling you. If, if uh, A writer should always go to that blank wall where you kind of go, I have no clue what that's about. That I, I don't understand that. That's where you have to go. That's an interesting uh, concept. Now, you're here at a mystery conference teaching writing and mm -hmm. gi giving instruction. Could you talk about the process of helping create uh, new mystery writers? Well, I, I'm in particular teaching character, and I had a class this morning on uh, how... A lot, of, a lot of these kids go through creative writing programs, and they're taught, not kids, but these students are taught about, um, you know, how to write characters, and they end up writing character biographies, and it's, it's like a laundry list of traits, and it's really, I used to do it, and it became so unhelpful, I just stopped, and I said, okay, now what is it that's really helping me write good characters? And it always gets down to scene, and it gets down to core emotion, so I go, okay, so what do you need to know about your character? And in terms of 
psychology, I said, you know, think of six key things. And the, there's three bad and three good. And it's you know, love, joy, success, or the good ones, and fear, shame, and guilt are the three bad ones. And you need a scene. What, think of your character's life. You know, where was the scene in which they were most ashamed? You know, what is their secret guilt? What is the one thing they did wrong that they still feel they're trying to atone for? Um, what are they, and fear, uh, not to be Freudian, but you know, I, I do believe that fear is one of the core human, I mean, it's one of the ways that we deal with the world. It's part of everything we do is our fear. And fear is more complicated than just fear of violence or fear of death. The, there's a lot of things to fear. Well, fear of betrayal, fear of humiliation. Of course, that goes to shame again, so you don't want to, <laughs> that's the twofer. Um, <laughs> but... Um, fear of abandonment. There's a wonderful book here, uh, Jason Kirsten, who's uh, Isabel Allende's stepson, and he's a, a journalist, and it's called The Art of Making Money, and it's about a counterfeiter. And, but it's a classic character arc in which he suffers the backstory wound. His father abandoned the whole family. Uh, the, wife, um, the mother was crazy, and there's three kids, and he was the oldest of the kids, and the dad just one day drove him to the projects in Chicago and took off. And I said, you know, when I was taught, teaching in class, I said, now, it's one thing to say that, but as a writer, you're going to have to feel that. You have to be that nine-year-old kid looking at your dad driving away and knowing he's not coming back. And how scared are you? And how angry are you? And in, if you're going to do that character, that's what you're going to need to know. That's a key moment. And you need to know the key moments in your characters. And you have to think of them scenically as opposed to, well, you know, he was raised in 1953 in some of them, Iowa, and then when the cornfields right outside the house, and <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I mean, you can, you, you can always make that stuff up on the fly, but the emotional heart of your character, you really mm -hmm. need, to, you need to see visually and feel. And once you've got that, then you can begin doing the other stuff. This so that's is kind of what I taught. This is an exploration in prose, then, not in list making, where you're actually, if you're creating those kind of scenes, you're writing a piece of fiction, not not a. Well, I a tell them though. I said, don't waste don't waste a lot of writing time on these. I don't want you to make these. Don't have to be perfect so that the New Yorker would publish them. But you need to sketch these scenes out so that you feel them. So that when you're doing other scenes with your character, you can bring that to them. If you have another scene where you, that resonates with this moment of shame or this moment of guilt or this moment of fear or this moment of success or joy that you've envisioned their childhood scene and you can see the echo between the two. And that will, you know, one of them asked, do we need to have these scenes in the book? I said, probably not. You know, but you need to know them. And you don't need to know them in, in like I said, in detailed prose. What you need to have is an, an intuitive sense of them so that you get the emotional core of your character. But I also tell students that there's a, there's a thing such as knowing too much about your characters. Your characters still have to interest you. If you know too much about them, or you think you know too much about them, they will become dead to you. you and a lot, of, a lot of rewriting is when your character becomes flat, it's because you've stopped, you've stopped exploring them. There's another thing to learn about them. And I, what I do is I just teach them a bunch of, I give them tools and things to think about when they're doing character work. And, um, you know, well, think about this. And one was morals. One was adaptations. How have they responded to stress? There's a whole structure from psychotic to immature to neurotic to functional ways of dealing with stress. And mm -hmm. so look at these lists, and maybe your character responded in this way. And just go with that. And it's, it's really just a way to begin to improvise with your own writing so that, so that the writing is alive for you. And if it's alive for you, chances are pretty good it's going to be alive for the reader. It sounds like this, these ideas of scenes are like 
as if you want to create the character's memories in your own minds so that you can go back and visit that memory when you write about the character. You, you, you do want a sense of emotional history with the character. And, um, but but again, you need to f it, it's really a case of where you, you want to tell people, even though you're using words, and when you're doing this work, it has to be an intuitive, imagistic, scenic sense. And that was what I was teaching this morning. I said, give up the laundry list. I don't want to know what street they lived on. I don't want to know, you know, for example, in visuals, I said, I don't need to know they're five foot nine. I don't need to know they have blue eyes. What I need to know is how do they feel about how they look? And how does that affect how they behave with other people? Are they short? Does that bother them? Face it. How many jerks in the world are short guys? <laughs> okay? I'm just, let's, you know. And, and you know, um, I, 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 a classic example, and I used this this morning, was Lee Child's Reacher. Mm -hmm. Reacher is never described, except every now and then. I remember there was one scene where he stood up and instantly... The, the three guys he was confronting were afraid. So what do you know? You know, he's big. You know, he's threatening. You know, but again, the way he described it was the effect his standing up had on the other characters. I said, that's what you're after. The physic, it, it isn't, you, you, I don't want you to describe. I want you to think about how does the physicality affect how they feel and how other people feel. It's all about the interchange between them and other, you know, always think in terms of seeing the individual with other people in conflict, in concert, whatever. That's just, that, that's, what, that's where things come alive. There's a great, I got this from an old girlfriend, which is, uh, you know, you don't know yourself by yourself. And um, I also brought up Stendhal's, that you, know, you can do everything in isolation except develop character. And then there's a Iris Murdoch, um, who's a, an incredible, thoughtful thinker about character. Mm -hmm. And she said, even if you think you're a kind of person who cares about other people, it will be alarming the degree to which you begin to realize that you rely only on yourself for your characters. And yet she also described love as the fundamental understanding that there is someone else in the world besides you. And I, find, I, I told them, I said, there's a sneaky, subtle truth to that, which is, yes, you're gonna use a lot of your, yourself to, to de develop your characters. But every now and then, you've got to remember, it's, and, and anybody who's been in a relationship knows this, where you, <laughs> you sit there and you think you understand your loved one, and then that something just comes out of the blue, and you go, what? And, and, and as a writer, just kind of go, that's a gift. <laughs> you <laughs> there know? you go. Yes, <laughs> that, that confrontation with the unknown, which is another human being. And I, I tell them that the two greatest sources that you're going to have for material are going to be yourself and other people. I know it sounds simple, but it's a fundamental truth. And describe people you know. And I, and I tell them, other people are a great way to understand contradictions. Because you'll see, con you see contradictions in your friends. You see somebody who has a terrible temper but is also incredibly kind. And you see this all the time. But you don't know their secrets. That's why they're secrets. Whereas you know your own. Mm -hmm. You know the things that you don't want anybody to know about yourself. So when you're writing character work, that sort of interiority that has to do with secrets and shame and fear, you'll draw on yourself. But contradictions, which also make characters come alive. Mm -hmm. um, I told them a story about this woman uh, I know who's beautiful and gracious and intelligent and refined, but she's also the most vicious infighter and turf defender I've ever met in, in you know, my 50 <laughs> years on this planet. And it, you just soon, is this the same person? But of course they are. But we, know, we, we have a tendency not to see our own contradictions because mm -hmm. we see of ourselves as this, we know, yeah, it's just me. We just think of it as part of a coherent Everything whole. we do makes sense to us. Yeah, exactly. So 
I say, you know, to get contradictions, you know, do some bi biographies of some friends of yours. You know, do all this character work, do some character work on some people you know. It's amazing how informative that can be and, and, how, and you know, what a useful, um, um, what am I thinking, exercise that can be. But for secrets, you really have to go to your own life. When was I most, what was my most shameful moment? What was that like? What was my most frightened moment? What was my greatest success? What was my happiest moment? And um, we always hope it's to come. Well, well, I, and I just <laughs> and said, dreaded you, 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 you can't use that answer. <laughs> I said, you know, that's that's copping out, you know, because what you're then you're not answering. Mm -hmm. I said, you need to know your characters up to the point in, in the book. You have to know their happiest moment and how far how far in the past was it? Did they expect that to happen again? These are all crucial questions, and these are the things that make a character come to life. And um, and uh, from the, the response I got, I think people enjoyed it. And so I hope that <laughs> I hope they weren't lying. <laughs> <laughs> But you never know. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's that's true. Unfortunately, yeah. and with pe human beings, you don't know when they're lying too often. <laughs> now, tell us the name of your forthcoming book. It's coming the out. The forthcoming book is "Do They Know I'm Running," and that's from a Los Lobos tune, which is the road to Gila Bend. It's about someone who's crossing the border, mm. and the line is, "Can they see me coming? Do they know I'm running?" And that just captured for me the whole experience of coming across the border. You know, d so many people don't understand just how bad it is in Latin America. And, um, and also, you know, how, how hardworking and decent these, these people are. I, I asked a question, I said, what kind of, they, they say, well, why don't they just stay there, you know, and, and take care of things? I said, you don't understand the corruption. And these people leave because they're doing this for their family. Would you, who would you rather respect? Somebody who's willing to go through what immigrants have to go through to get here. And because of the smugglers that have taken over all of this, you know, it, it's basically run by the cartels now. The criminals they have to deal with, the things they subject themselves to to get here, you know, that's heroic. Would you actually prefer somebody who's just willing to sit there and watch their family starve to death? Is, is that, do you consider that virtuous? Um, so anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my soapbox and I'm going to stand on it until I die. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I, and we're going to have an immigration debate in this coming year, and, uh, and hopefully this book will be part of it. And I just simply want to say, you know, w we have to understand, uh, there's no way you're going to solve immigration without solving corruption in, the, in Latin America, without solving development in economies. CAFTA, for example, um, made it much easier for American producers of corn to export American corn to Central America. Where and we've undercut corn prices. We have entire yeah. oh no, we have entire communities that have been run off their land. Well, where are they going to go? They're going to come here. So yes, we have helped corporate farmers in the Midwest, and now we have increased immigration because the, the people who are who are growing corn down there, they it's thirty-seven dollars for the the fertilizer to grow twenty-five dollars worth of corn. I mean, you don't need to be Bertrand Russell to figure out that math, and it's just. And, and there's a lot of problems of, of that kind. So you, so you have to call economies, corruption, drugs. Corruption in Latin America is largely driven by drugs until you solve the drug problem. You're not going to solve the, the immigration problem because as long as the corruption is that bad, nothing materially is going to affect these people's lives for the positive. So you're going to keep on having the same problem again. So we have to look at this in, in, in a holistic way. I don't think that's going to happen, I'm, um, unfortunately. A novel but I think is a holistic to, way to look at well things. That's, yeah, that's it. That's what I try to do.
but you know, novels aren't policy. If only they were. If only we could art. <laughs> if only you know, 100 years of solitude could be the way we ran the country. I mean, I think we'd all be happier, even though it's a sad book. <laughs> You sure would beat what I see in Washington. Well, I, I, I listened to Joe Lansdale the other day, and he said something like, well, you know, Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> and I think that really explains a lot. <laughs> but he's from Texas. He can get away with saying things like that. <laughs> I've been speaking with David Corbett. His forthcoming book is Do They Know I'm Running? His latest book is Blood of Paradise. Thank you for joining me, David. Rick, I would do this anytime. I love this program. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.